Psalm 2. God's word says this, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrifying them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment, Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath will, his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Tonight, as we turn our attention to God's word here in Psalm chapter 2, uh, this psalm is going to help us understand the, the world in which we live. And this psalm is going to calm our hearts about the future. Because here in the psalm, uh, the veil is pulled back, as it were, so that we can see what's happening in the world, and then we're going to be told the outcome of what's going to happen here in the world. So we can find peace and rest and joy and be untroubled by the latest news headline that details the open rebellion against God and against his word that seemingly is uh, gaining unstoppable momentum. But Psalm 2 gives us full confidence and faith in God. Gives us confidence and faith in God and confidence and faith in his Messiah and his coming kingdom. So the Psalm stands right at the beginning of the Psalter to give those who enter into the Psalter a promise of the Messianic kingdom, Messianic truths that are contained in it. In fact, the first two Psalms have been described by some as uh, twin pillars, if you will. They frame the entrance into the Psalms. And if you understand the first two Psalms, uh, you will understand the rest of them because they're built upon that foundation. You might want to just look back real quickly, Psalm 1, and remember that. It's a Psalm that contrasts the the righteous man and the sinner. Uh, Psalm 1, verse 1, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and it, uh, in whatever he does, he prospers. Verse 4, the wicked are not so. But they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So Psalm 1 addresses the individual in terms of how that person uh, responds to the written word of God and how that person responds to the written word of God obviously determines their eternal destiny. Those who uh, repent and follow the truth uh, will be uh, blessed, they'll prosper. Those who do not will perish in the way of the wicked. Psalm 2, however, when you come to it, it's more of a universal psalm. It speaks not just to the individual, but really to the nations. It addresses the people's. Uh, the peoples of the world, and how they really respond to the incarnate word, the word come in the flesh. 
So at the beginning of the Psalms, you have these two twin pillars. Uh, again, Psalm 1 addressing the written word of God, and Psalm 2 addressing the person, the incarnate word. And Psalm 2 addresses man's sinful, arrogant attempts to throw off God and his sovereign rule and his sovereign ruler. It's a cosmic revolt, if you will. It began in history at the fall of Lucifer and those angels who rebelled with him, who later became known as Satan and his demons. The rebellion entered into the world of mankind in the Garden of Eden when the first man and woman arose up against the supreme authority of God. And the rebellion has been going on ever since, gaining momentum in an attempt to uh, revolt against God. But no matter how determined, no matter how imaginative, the apostasy of the depraved humanity energized by wicked, fallen, angelic beings is, again, whose head is Satan, they will never succeed in tearing down the authority of God. They'll never succeed in tearing down God's sovereign rule. There are many times, of course, in uh, human history where the cosmic rebellion is more intense than other times, but all through it all, the efforts of puny man can never thwart the sovereign will of God. Now, a lot of times when we go to the Psalms, we approach the Psalms as from a position of trying to interpret them in light of some kind of immediate circumstance or problem that we are facing, some kind of issue or discouragement, perhaps some kind of anxiety, and we turn to the Psalms to provide us relief. <clears throat> On one hand, that's not uh, improper, but the Psalms are bigger than that. The Psalms are grander. They're, they're more universal. They're, they're more global, if you will. So like any good Bible study, you've got to understand what the Psalmist is saying and, and what the text of the Scripture is saying, and then draw the application from that, rather than the other way around. Rather than saying, look, I have an immediate need, and I hope this Psalm's going to help me with that um, problem, but you have to understand what the psalm says. What does it mean by what it's saying? And I think when we approach scripture in general, we, uh, certainly when we approach the psalms that way, uh, the psalms for sure help us to have a bigger understanding of God, <clears throat> a bigger view of God, a grander understanding of God and his faithfulness to his people. And listen, his faithfulness to his word, right? To his word and to his own glory. We all need a bigger view of God. A bigger view of God, his faithfulness to his people, his faithfulness to his own glory. Because again, whatever circumstances or situations that are going on in our lives on a personal level, God is in control. Right? God is in control of all history. God is directing all the events of history towards a final cataclysmic end or climactic end is probably a better word to say. It will be cataclysmic in the end, but ultimately it's going to be climactic because it's going to be the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God's purpose for history is, is to honor his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and put him on full display. So Psalm 2 really fits into that, that proper view of history. And Psalm 2 really is a call for the peoples of the world to submit, to repent, for the nations to honor Christ, for the people of the world to kiss the son. That's what I've entitled the, the sermon tonight, Kiss the Son. Now when you look at Psalm 2, like some other Psalms, there's no... Uh, superscription, right? There's no uh, information in front of it for us to understand who wrote it. There's no background like some of the other Psalms. It gives us some kind of detail. But if you were to look into the New Testament in uh, Acts chapter 4 verse 25, it says, the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, did say, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise a futile thing? So Peter and John, who are before the Jewish council, giving testimony that Psalm 2 is written by David, 
And obviously David's uh, Israel's premier king, uh, the one whom God anointed while he was yet a shepherd and when Saul was still reigning. And eventually David ascends to the throne of Israel, God making him king over the nation. So David is familiar with kingships, right? And kingship and kingdoms. He has a personal knowledge of what it means to uh, uh, ask God uh, for help as a king. And again, David was installed by God as a king and God assisted him in his reign and protected him from his enemies. But Psalm 2 goes way beyond David. There's a discussion, I guess, in academics over whether or not uh, Psalm 2 is a, uh, appropriate to David or applying to David, or is it a messianic psalm? And I think there's no question about it that Psalm 2 goes way beyond David. And I think you see that in uh, verse 1. It describes a worldwide revolt. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the people's devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take their counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. So the psalm is greater than just David and whatever kind of circumstances were going on in his life and his kingdom. Uh, The psalm really has a global or universal application. In fact, there are about ten different um, portions of Scripture that attribute Psalm 2 to prophecy, uh, specifically concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, Hebrews 1. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world. Verse 5 of Hebrews 1, For which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my Son, today I have begotten thee? That's a quote right out of Psalm verse uh, chapter 2, verse 7. Again, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father is talking uh, <coughs> to his Son, or about his Son. <coughs> verse 5 in uh, Hebrews uh, 1 uh, continues and said, uh, again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Uh, verse uh, 6, when the angels, or when again he brings forth his firstborn to the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Uh, that's a little bit out of Psalm 89, but again, the context is uh, quoting Psalm 2, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, again, another affirmation that Psalm 2 is not just Davidic, it's Messianic. So Psalm 2 is about Christ, and it's the father speaking about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, uh, again, uh, Hebrews 5 and 5 confirm, confirms that. Psalm 2 is written about a thousand years uh, before the physical time of uh, Christ's earthly uh, ministry, his earthly life. But it's a prophecy about him. It's a prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, verse 7, Surely I will tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Again, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Verse 12, again, do homage to the son. So again, Psalm 2 is messianic. And it portrays an ongoing rebellion of a world, the lost world, against God and against his Son. And it points to the future, to a time when the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to appear on the stage of human history. And again, the world's rebellion against God in reality is a revolt against the reign of God's Son on the earth. But all such attempts are going to be futile. They're going to fail. And that's what's being discussed here in Psalm 2. It's the revolt of the nations against the rule of God. And it's an open rebellion. It's open mutiny against the sovereign of the universe. And Psalm 2 really lays out God's response to that rebellion. So Psalm 2 really is not only messianic, but it's contemporary, because all of God's word is contemporary. And as I said this morning, the person of the the Father is always bearing witness of his Son, right? So although the Psalm's written a thousand years ago, it speaks of our time, into our time, and it's a description, again, of the world in which we live. The nations are in an uproar. The peoples are devising a vain thing. Now, from the very beginning of time, that's been mankind's history. 
Again, ever since in, in the, uh, the garden, mankind rebelled against God. The history of mankind has been one war, one murder, one conflict, one strife after another. The nations, the, the, uh, the world are always in an uproar. They're always in open rebellion against God and against God's word. We were talking about this the other night in our small group, and I would encourage you that if you're not part of a small group, you ought to be, because it's a great time for you to be an encouragement to someone and you to be encouraged by the others in that group. But we're talking about just all of the uh, issues that are facing us in the world in in, uh, which we live, that we're being bombarded with on a daily basis, and the ones that we can see coming. Everything from the social justice movement, critical race theory, intersectionality, the promotion of homosexuality, the gender confusion, which I kind of see is a little bit different than the promotion of so-called transgenderism because there's uh, one for the children and one for the adults, right? The, the idea of environmental justice or global warming, the abortion issue, the attack on truth. I mean, all of these things just keep coming over and over again, and all of them ultimately are attacks upon the Word of God. That's, the, that's what they're all... Uh, coming out of. Every one of them finds its foundation around that one principle. It's open rebellion against God. Open rebellion against God's word. And I don't know if you know that, but or know this or realize this, but all of those issues are addressed biblically in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. Every one of them. God created them male and female. Not 37 different flavors and varieties and etc. and so forth. And you get the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, right? And then you can have a biblical understanding of all the stuff that's king, being fly, uh, flying our direction, right? All the faulty worldviews that, again, are attacking us and attacking God's truth on a daily basis. You have to have a biblical foundation. The planet belongs to God, not to uh, that party or this other party or whatever. And he's going to do with what he wants to do with this planet until he's done with it. He created it to create a space literally in the universe where he could carry out the eternal plan of redemption. It belongs to him. Let me tell you a secret. It's not about polar bears. Sorry. It's not about walruses falling off cliffs. It's not about any of the nonsense that you see in the media, which again is another reason to turn the media off. It's about eternal redemption. And I absolutely guarantee you, this is not in my notes, so I'll try not to run too far off my tangent here, but I absolutely guarantee you there's enough energy in this planet until God is done with it because God put it in this planet for the benefit of mankind as he's carrying out the redemption of mankind for the eternal purposes that he has to, to redeem in through Christ. When you stop using the resources or you stop... Worshiping the creator, you worship the creation. And that's what you're seeing. That's where the go, go green or what the, the green deal or whatever the nonsense is, right? Save the planet. I saw a new sticker today. It was uh, save the bees. It's like, oh my gosh, we're saving everything. You know? In, in the end, guess what? I mean, we should be good stewards of God's planet, but it is ultimately a disposable planet, right? When God's done with it, he's going to burn the whole thing up. It will not be mankind that causes global warming. It won't be because you use your car too much. It will be because God's done with it because it belongs to him. 
So all the issues that are flying our direction are addressed if you have a biblical worldview, a biblical understanding. If you get the first three chapters of the book of Genesis right, then you're probably going to be good to go to evaluate the things that are going on in the world. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising vain things? The kings of the earth take their stand against, uh, their, take their stand and the rulers take their counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. Faulty thinking, anti-biblical thinking. It again is all a revolt against God. It is a mutiny against his rulership. And again, it's an attack upon his word, both written and incarnate. So again, Psalm 2 is going to lay out God's response to that rebellion. And again, Psalm 2 is going to help us understand the world in which we live. But more importantly, I think Psalm 2, again, I said at the beginning, but Psalm 2 is going to help calm our fears about the future. It looks like, it appears, evil is gaining momentum. Darkness is coming. Maybe it's unstoppable. Now, there's no question that there's an open rebellion against God that's uh, going on in a fallen world. Sometimes we do get discouraged when we see what's going on. Sometimes we look around and go, man, I just cannot believe how fast we're in a free fall. Right? The moral decay, the insanity, the stupidity of thinking is just beyond description. But the reality is when we come to Psalm 2, we're lifted out of our discouragement because... Psalm 2 tells us how things are going to turn out. That's always good to know, right? You want to know at the end of the movie? You want to see how things turn out, right? Psalm 2 tells us we don't have to be disturbed by the evening news. Psalm 2 tells us we can be encouraged and have peace in the midst of the chaos all around us. Psalm 2 tells us ultimately that all human rebellion against God and against Christ will be crushed. Crushed. So again, Psalm 2 lays out God's response to mankind's rebellion it gives us reason for hope, reason to be encouraged. If we set our eyes on the things above where God and Christ are and not on the things of the earth. So again, Psalm 2 declares, in spite of the repeated attempts of man to resist God's kingdom, the Lord has established his son as king and Lord over all. So the psalm ends with very wise counsel for everyone. And God the Holy Spirit calls everyone to bow before the sun embrace the sun embrace him now before it's too late before you face his fierce fierce wrath now if you just look at the psalm it's uh, divided up structurally wise it's divided up into four different stanzas each has three verses the first paragraph really describes the bitter opposition of the enemies of the lord and, and uh, his uh, towards him and his anointed it's a the conspiracy of the nations if you will it's the nations in rebellion. The second paragraph describes the calm assurance that the Lord himself has in the face of this opposition. It really is the contempt of the Father against that rebellion. It describes again a God who's sovereign. And the third stanza, the third paragraph, presents the conquest of the Son. It presents his right to rule. And the last paragraph consists of the, uh, an exhortation again to the rebels. Submit, bow immediately to the one who's the Lord. It is the counsel of the Holy Spirit for men to repent, embrace the Son before it's too late. So that's how it kind of lays out. So let's start working our way through it here. Verse 1, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers take their counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So again, here's the insurrection against God. 
And David, again, who's the author, he sees the entire human race united in its rebellion against God and against God's rule. So again, here's the conspiracy of the nations. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? Note that nations and peoples are plural. So that means that the rebellion is united. It's all the inhabitants of the earth against God and against Christ. Now again, the rebellion uh, began right at the beginning against God's rule. Uh, Again, first in the heavens and then on the earth when Adam and Eve took of the forbidden fruit. And David here is speaking of a continued, united, universal rebellion against God, a federation of the people, a federation of the nations to draw together in their united common hatred of God. And David asked, why? Why? What reason? It's really a rhetorical question. He's not really seeking information. He's really expressing his outrage that the nations would have the audacity to rebel against God and against God's chosen king. Why are the nations, the word there in the Hebrew is goyim, it's usually used of non-Hebrew people. If you have the authorized version, it says heathen. Why are the heathen? Why are the nations? Why are the non-Hebrew people in a in a in an uproar, or in rage, or in rebellion? Uh, the word there means tumult, commotion. Why are there increasing racial tensions, riots, rising crime rates, gang wars? random acts of violence, increasing moral degeneracy? Why are there countless formal, if I can put it that way, wars and conflicts raging all throughout the world always, where thousands upon thousands, perhaps millions of people are losing their lives? Why is there conflict everywhere? Now, some of the commentators say the idea behind that word uproar or rage or is, is a picture of the ocean. And that mankind and his unbelief apart from God is often... Uh, referred to in the Bible as the sea or the ocean. Uh, Isaiah 57, verse 20 says, The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose water cast cast up mire and dirt. So I don't know if you've ever been by the ocean, but sometimes you look out there in the ocean, it's kind of calm. It appears flat in the surface. But if you've lived around the ocean, you know there's always a current below the surface. There's always motion. It's always moving. It's always boiling. And when the situation is right, then it breaks forth on the top. There's a rage, and uproar. That's the picture of mankind, the, 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 the prophet Isaiah says. Uh, mankind is in constant conflict. Now, he's in constant conflict with God, therefore he's in constant conflict with himself. He's in constant conflict with each other. There are times on the surface where things appear to be calm, but underneath that there's a current that is always moving, that's always on the verge of breaking forth into a to rage. There's always constant tumult, constant disorder, constant confusion, constant battles, constant chaos. And again, the world finds itself in this position because it's in constant rebellion against God. The world in its unbelief, in its lawlessness, in its irreverence, in its unholiness, in its lack of self-control, rages. It's always raging. It's always relentless. It's always irrational. It's always in a fury. Again, we live in a time of constant conflict, a time of constant violence, and we live in a time that is marked by the fact that men's love has grown cold. We also live in a time where men and women have lost any sense of shame. We understand that men have sinned from the beginning, right? But now they do it openly. They do it without shame. 
I mean, just stop and ask yourself this question. Just, just think about this. When is the last time you ever saw anybody blush? For you younger people, have to look that word up. It's an old word we used to use when people were ashamed of what they did. But you don't see it anymore. People just sin and they do it openly. They do it defiantly. They're proud of it. They're proud of their perversion. I had the unfortunate experience of taking my wife's car to a shop to get the windshield changed. It had a crack in it. And the guy said, well, there's not many channels. Just got this one. And I sat in the waiting room. Thankfully, it was only about 20 minutes. And after I was done, I don't know if I needed to throw up first or take a shower. Or both. The deviance that was on the uh, Dr. Phil program that I'd never seen before was off the chart. And thankfully, it was only about 20 minutes worth of it. But that's okay. More to come next week. And I just thought to myself, boy, if people are listening to this kind of nonsense day in and day out, how many hours a day the TV's on, no wonder the world is like it is. Because this stuff is perverse. And it's like 10 o'clock in the morning on whatever the channel it was. People are proud of their perversion. They celebrate it. They flaunt it. We live in a time of unbelievable, open, defiant sinfulness, open, flagrant, mocking, cursing, blaspheming of God. Ours is a time of absolute perversion and overturning of all standards, a time of deliberate reversal of those things that had up to this point been more or less universally accepted were unacceptable before God. But now we live in a time where we call evil good and good evil, and we substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, and we substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Therefore, this is a time of absolute confusion. Confusion, violent rage, moral chaos. Things are going from bad to worse because mankind is in rebellion against its creator. And again, the history of mankind is one long chain of refusal to obey him. They're haters of God, haters of his law. They furiously oppose him because he exposes their sin. Why are the nations in an uproar, the people's and the word people there is Leon. So some commentators suggest, again, the word nations, Goyim, describes the Gentile nations, the heathen nations, but Leon denotes perhaps the people of Israel. So what does that say? Everybody's involved. That's what he says. Right? You have the entirety of humanity, both Jews and Gentiles, encompassed by both of those words in their rebellion against God. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? King James says, imagining a vain thing. The word there, imagine or devising, means to moan, growl, utter, muse, meditate. Hmm, meditate. Plot. What was going on in the meditation of Psalm 1? In Psalm 1, there was the godly man who meditated and he found his delight in the law of the Lord, and he did that day and night. But the godless man, the godless nations, however, they use their imaginations, they use their meditation to find ways to try to get rid of God. And it's a word that speaks of deliberate design. It's a premeditated crime, if you will. It's not a crime of passion, but it's a crime of purpose. They're sitting around trying to plot, devise, thinking vain things. And the idea behind the word vain things there means empty, futile, worthlessness of no purpose. So it's a picture of people exerting effort without any accomplishment. 
people expending energy that is misdirected, it's going to lead to a dead end. The NIV says, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot a vain thing? So the conspiracy here, the vain thing in the context is the conspiracy that is a united global rebellion against God. A united global rebellion against God and against his anointed. And again, the idea behind the plan is it's vain. It's meaningless. It's empty. It's destined to fail. Why are the nations in uproar the people devising a vain thing? Verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Again, why are they doing this, David wants to know. Why are they leading this resistance, this rebellion against God? Why are the political leaders, the national leaders of the world taking their stand or setting themselves up against God? Why are they forming a united front? Why are they counseling together against the Lord and his anointed? Again, the question rings, why? Because I don't know if you ever looked at the history of mankind, but the history of, uh, at least uh, in the Bible, it doesn't go very well for mighty rulers of the world who rebel against God. Ask Nimrod. Ask Pharaoh. Ask Nebuchadnezzar. Antiochus Epiphanes and countless others who tried to resist God. It doesn't go well for the rulers of the world to resist God. Why are the nations in uproar and the peoples devising of vain things? And again, the rebellion here is not just by the rulers, not just by the kings themselves. It's not a rebellion that is imposed upon the masses or by the masters of the world upon the masses. It really is a grassroots movement, if you will. It's everybody. Princes and peoples alike. It's a united front. All of the peoples of the world. Now, it's interesting. The world has different thoughts on a variety of different things. It has different political views, political systems, different ideas about uh, economies and different ideas about social structures and education and national goals, etc. and so forth. But the one thing that the world is united in and it is in its desire to get rid of God. The whole world is united in that. Why do the kings of the earth take their stand? The rulers take their counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. Verse 3 says the nations and its rulers rebel because they want to be free from God. They don't want to be subject to him. They don't want to be subject to the, to the one true God. They want to be free from what they consider to be the yoke of God. They don't want to live in submission to his law. They want to be their own ruler. They want to be their own king. Therefore, they unite together and overthrow. They commit uh, to overthrow. They commit mutiny against the Most High God. Verse 3, again, is the kings of the earth, the rulers speaking, and they say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The New English translation says, let's tear off the shackles they put on us and let's free ourselves from their ropes. The ESV says, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The NIV, let us break their chains. Let's throw off their fetters. The picture comes from agriculture. In the agricultural world, there was a wooden yoke that was put on the neck of an animal to control that animal, right? To to guide it with cords and leather straps, chains, etc., to direct it. So the yoke becomes a a symbol of submission. And the animal that was uh, under the yoke was in submission to its owner. So that's the metaphor here. That's the picture. uh, This yoke, the rule of God. And men don't want to be yoked. They don't want to be ruled by God. So they say, let us rip it apart. Let's cast it away from us, right? Let's break the fetters. Let's tear off the shackles so we can finally be free. That's the statement. And again, it's absolute blind mutiny. The rebels want to be free from the control of God. And that's the very heart of sin, the repudiation of God's rule in favor for one's own rule. That's uh, the idea behind the saying, we will not have this man reign over us, right? We, we don't want him. So what are these shackles? 
What are the, the fetters, if you will? Well, aren't they God's law, God's truth, God's rule, God's demands? So you see that fallen mankind thinks that God's rules, His commandments are against them. They think that the Ten Commandments are oppressive. The shackles, the chains, the limitations on their fun, limitations on their freedom. Fallen mind of fallen man sees what God gave for mankind's good as evil, oppressive. And that's exactly why God gave his law. He gave it for good. He gave it for mankind's good. He desires that none would perish and all would come to a knowledge of the truth. And God gave the law because he wants what is best for mankind. But men don't realize that. That's why they see God's word as his rules or as shackles, ropes, bonds, fetters that they have to free themselves from. And just stop for a moment and think of the insanity of that kind of thinking. What's wrong with God's law? What's wrong with honor your father and your mother? Where's the restriction there? To honor the one, to give respect to the one who raised you and provided everything for you. What's wrong with thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder? Why do men and women want the liberty to do that? Why do they want the liberty to murder? What's wrong with thou shalt not commit adultery? What's wrong with thou shalt not steal? What's wrong with thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor or shall not covet your neighbor's wife? Why, why are those kind of things against us? What's wrong with the prohibition against those kind of things? Why does the world want to be free from those commands of God? Because God gave those commands for mankind's benefit, for his good, for his well-being, yet mankind rebels against them. So again, men don't realize that God gave the Ten Commandments out of grace in order to limit evil, in order to restrain evil in order to hold back sin. Because without law, you have complete chaos, anarchy, confusion. We've seen it in some of our big cities this last summer, right? Let's defund the police. And confusion turns into anarchy in a very short amount of time. Again, the reason the world is the way it is today is because men are in rebellion against God. They're in rebellion against God's truth. They think that God and his rules are against them. Therefore, they want their liberty. They want their freedom. So the insanity of thinking that these laws of God are wrong or against man, again, it's just the insanity of sin. But stop and ask yourself the other side of the question, what, it would, what would it be like if? What would it be like if everybody obeyed God's law? What if everybody obeyed? What would it be like if men and women actually honored their father and mother and showed them respect? What would it be like if men didn't murder what would it be like if men didn't commit adultery? What if what it would be like what would it be like if men didn't covet their neighbor's wife? Well, at least with those you probably say, well, it'd probably be a whole lot less sadness in the world, right? A whole lot less sorrow, no sadness, no sorrow, there'd be no more heartache, no more little children in tears because of the divorce of their parents. What if men didn't steal? What if they didn't lie? What if they didn't bear false witness? What would the world be like if men understood that God loved them and God gave these laws for their benefit? It would be completely different, wouldn't it? It would be completely different than the world in which we're living in. Yet in mankind's folly, he stands opposed to God. He stands opposed to God's rule. He opposes God's law 
He sees them as shackles, fetters, chains. He's got to cast them off. They've got to be broken, thrown away. The kings of the earth take their stand against the rule and uh, take their stand. The rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Again, the, the rebels in blind hostility against, against God have a love for their sin. And they refuse to be ruled. They refuse to be ruled by the Lord and by his anointed. And of course, the, the word there that is used for anointed is the word Messiah. The one who's been sent by God. The chosen one. The one who's sent into this world out of the Father's tremendous love for mankind. The one who's mankind's only hope for reconciliation. For forgiveness of sin. And do you know what the most tragic thing here is in this rebellion that we've just kind of worked our way through? It's not just that men have rebelled against God's law that was put in place for their benefit. It's not just that they've openly defied him. The most tragic part of the rebellion, the most tragic part of the whole thing is men have rebelled against God's goodness. They've rebelled against his love. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take their counsel against the Lord, together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, the Deliverer. God didn't give mankind just the Ten Commandments. God gave mankind his Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him would not, what? Perish, but have everlasting life. God gave his Son out of love. Romans 5 and 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet rebels, right? Christ died for us. Men in their rebellion are not only rejecting God's love, they're rejecting God's love. They're spurning the offer of God's forgiveness. They're ridiculing his love. They're laughing at his offer of mercy, this offer of salvation. The Bible says all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The free gift, however, of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And men in their madness and sin and their folly, they ridicule that love. They laugh at God's offer of mercy. They laugh at his offer of salvation. They reject the free offer of eternal life. And guess what? Everybody's in on it. Everybody's in on it. The entire world is in rebellion against God and against his anointed. The world's united against God's kindness. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John had been arrested. Been arrested because they're teaching the people and proclaiming that in Jesus the resurrection from the dead occurs. And they're standing before the Jewish council. They've been commanded by the council not to speak anymore or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. And the men say, well, you know, we can't stop speaking concerning what we've seen and heard. They're released. They go back to their companions. They report what happens. Acts chapter 4, verse 25 the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, his servant said, why, are the, why did the Gentiles rage and the people devise a futile thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers have gathered together against the Lord and his Christ. Verse 27, for truly in this city they were gathered together against the holy servant Jesus, whom thou did anoint, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. He's saying, they're saying, look, everybody's in on this rebellion. And the, the people who would nev- naturally be enemies, Herod and Pontius Pilate, they couldn't agree on anything except their hatred for Christ. The Jews and the Gentiles who couldn't agree on anything agreed on their hatred for Christ. They formed a bond. They unified. Uh, they were unified in their common hostility and hatred of the Savior. And they had a common goal to crucify him. 
Silence him. Put him to death. Let's get rid of him. That way we don't have to listen to him. We don't have to see him. So they thought that crucifixion was their hope, their opportunity to cast aside the one who would assert his lordship over them and over the nations. So again, they say, let's kill him. Let's murder him. We don't want this man to rule over us. And all the peoples united, all the nations find themselves in a common purpose to put Christ to death, to cast him aside. Again, God's kindness, God's anointed comes into the world, God's love, and the world wants to kill him. So there's this question in the background that just keeps echoing. The psalmist is asking, why? Why? Why are they doing this? What's the point? Why are they doing this? And again, what is the point? It's absolute madness. It's folly. It's foolishness. To rebel against God, to rebel against his anointed when they cannot possibly be successful. And again, they're not only rebelling against God's rule, but they're rebelling against his love. And that's the entire human race in the depravity of sin, the insanity of sin, the rebellion, the mutiny, the foolishness, the devising vain plots, futile plans, empty schemes against the Lord and against his anointed. So the world is united in their vain attempt to rid themselves of God and to rid themselves of Christ. You know, I'm absolutely convinced that if the Lord Jesus Christ physically showed up tomorrow on the steps of the Capitol at Washington, D.C., and he showed up at the Kremlin in Moscow, he showed up at number 10 Downing Street in England, Start if he stood at the door of the Communist Party headquarters in Beijing and said, I'm here to rule... I'm absolutely convinced the kings of the earth would still take their stand and the rulers would still counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The world is mad. I'm not talking angry. I'm mad, insane. The world may be divided up amongst themselves and again, all the variety of issues that they're divided up over, but the world unites together against their rebellion against God and their hatred for Christ their hatred for God. There is an anti-God, an anti-Christ mindset in the world. As I said earlier, again, we live in a time where the rebellion is just open. Sin and rebellion out in the open. Men and women, again, no longer feel shame. They sin openly, defiantly, and they're proud of it. They boast of it. Every kind of perversion is permitted. Every kind of perversion is extolled. People say restraint is bad and uh, sin is good. And at the same time, in that world of moral confusion, you have a tremendous amount of religious confusion, right? You know this for as well as I do. The world will tolerate any religion you want. The world will allow you to worship anything, anyone you want, everything you want, commit any kind of act of uh, sin or rebellion. You can even murder babies if you want. You can murder them. You can murder the innocent before they're, bor- they're born, or you can mur- murder the, the the children right after they're born. In, in this country, that's now permitted um, to uh, exercise your religion, the religion of self. But the one thing the world will not tolerate, the one thing the world will not accept, is if you come forward and you proclaim Christ as King. 
If you proclaim Christ as the only way of salvation, the only way to be reconciled to God, the world will not tolerate that message. The world will persecute you, and perhaps the world will even kill you, murder you. Because the world is united in its stand against the Lord and against his anointed. If you speak about Jesus Christ and see the evil in the sight of the world and and you, you say that Jesus, again, he is the king, he's the only way of salvation, that's bad. That won't be tolerated. That will be seen as unloving, narrow-minded, intolerant. The world won't permit it because the world is in total rebellion. And the world lives in sheer madness. So how does God respond to all that? How does God respond to the rebellion? Verse 4. He who sits in the heaven laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. How, how does God respond to the insanity, the rebellion against him? With contempt, scorn. He who sits in the heaven laughs. He scoffs at them. So the response from God to man's insane, arrogant boasting and rebellion is laughter. And you know, this is the only place in the entire Bible that it says God laughs. And it's not a laugh of hilarity, it's a laugh of derision, mockery, contempt. Men boldly shaking their fists against the God of heaven, which is absolutely insane, and the Lord laughs and he scoffs at them. The New English translation says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs in disgust, and the Lord taunts them. The ESV says, He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Modern man, modern puny man, with all of his talents, all of his technology. See, iPhone 47 just came out. All of his advances, skills, inventions, still man, just man. And guess what? God is still God. Man is still man. God is still God. And God is the eternal, uncreated, self-existent, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, infinite, infallible, holy, high and lifted up, worthy to be worshipped by countless throngs of angels, God. God is God. God is the creator. God is the one who gives life and breath to all men. God is the one who can take that away at an instant. And God laughs at foolish men. Foolish men who think that they can throw off his his yoke, that they can throw off his rule, that they can overrule the sovereign of the universe. How in the world do men think they're going to get rid of God? Mere man can't overthrow the sovereign because he reigns forever. He's the reigning God. The creature cannot stop the hand of the creator who has determined what will come to pass because he, the sovereign, is in absolute control. So in essence, God is saying your rebellion is doomed. It's doomed to failure. You know what? It's not even worthy of my attention. I just laugh and scoff at the whole thing because it is so ridiculous. But that divine laughter is soon going to turn to fury. Verse 5, Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. Right When the last uh, of God's chilling laughter, if you will, dies away, it's going to be replaced by a rising tide of fearful holy wrath. Uh, the King James says, Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Right, The outcome of rebellion, of uh, the rebels who have uh, 
uh, displayed uncontrollable rage against their creator, the whole thing's going to be flipped. And when God comes in judgment, they're going to experience uncontrollable fear when God the creator brings justice. My dear friends, you want justice? God will bring it. God will bring it. He'll bring justice and judgment against all the rebels. Because God hates and rejects all those who sin and sin against him. And God will judge without mercy those who rebel against him and refuse his offer of forgiveness and reconciliation through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will judge without mercy. And in response to man's insane attempt to overthrow God's eternal plans and purposes, the Lord, in essence, thunders down from heaven. He says this, verse 6, But as for me, I have... As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So the words of the Lord here are spoken with absolute certainty. There's no doubt about the outcome. I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Zion's a reference to Jerusalem. It has both an earthly and a heavenly application. Zion, again, is God's holy city, Jerusalem. It's a specific location. It refers to an earthly temple in an area in Jerusalem, as well as will be elevated uh, the, the throne room in heaven. But it's words that ultimately anticipate the return of the Lord to this earth, to a glorious enthronement upon this earth during the thousand-year reign from Jerusalem, Revelation chapter 20. So to the rulers and the kings of the earth, those who are attempted rebellion, God says, look, I've already determined who's going to be the final reigning king. I've already determined it. You can't stop it. You can't stop it. You can't stop him. Because nobody can stop me. Nobody can stop God. It's settled by eternal decree, the ultimate outcome of all things, and the fact that Christ is going to reign in time and Christ is going to reign throughout eternity. So again, you can see how foolish and ridiculous puny man is in his thinking that he can overthrow or cast off God, or that he can overthrow or cast off God's eternal plans in Christ. The sovereignty of God and God's eternal decree for his final ruler is meant for us who know him to be an encouragement. For the world, it's a warning. Right? For us, it's an encouragement. Because again, in the times in which we're living that seem like they're getting darker, it seems like darkness and evil is getting the upper hand, but God says, look, my sovereign purposes are never going to be stopped. I, I won't allow wicked people to prosper forever. Right? There, there, there's going to come an end to that. They're never going to, the evil people in this world are never going to have the final say. In fact, he says, look at my son, you know? I mean, the world took their best shot at him, didn't they? They united together in the hatred against him. They united together and they murdered him. It took their best shot. But three days later, he came out of the grave. Men gave their best effort in rebellion, but they never ultimately succeeded against God and against his anointed because God is the ruler, not man. Three days later, Christ comes out of the grave. There's a resurrection. Did I say that this morning? The resurrection changes everything? So while we see wicked and evil men proceeding from bad to worse, it's exactly what Paul told Timothy would happen. We see the human rebellion rising up, infecting everything kind of like a putrid, pus-filled sore. When we think everything is uh, in trouble and hope is fading... We need to remember God's attitude towards the foolish 
mankind and what God's attitude is towards the conspiracy of the nations against him, he just laughs at the whole thing. He's not threatened by it at all. Because he's already ordained the future. He's already ordained his eternal plan to be carried out in time and eternity future to establish Christ as king. Because we know these truths, because he's told us, we can calm our hearts. We've had the veil pulled back, as it were, so we can see what's happening in the world now, and we can see where the whole thing is going, because again, God, out of his kindness, God our Father has told us the end. Right? He's given us the outcome. What does that mean? You go to bed at night, go to sleep, rest, enjoy peace. Don't be troubled by the latest news headline because God has it all in control. God has dealt with the open rebellion against him and against his word. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. The third stanza. First, you had the conspiracy of the nations, right? The rebellion against God, which was responded to by the contempt of the father, right? Because he's the sovereign. The third stanza, now the son's going to speak. And this is the conquest of the son. What the father has decreed, the son, the Messiah, is going to execute. He's going to carry it out. Again, this is the son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is him describing uh, the basis upon which he'll reign. Verse 7, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. So Christ has the right to rule because God the Father has given that to him. He's ordained it. The sovereign says, I have installed you, Christ, I have installed you as my king upon Zion. And since God is the most powerful one in the universe, no one can challenge his authority. No one can challenge his supremacy, his sovereignty. No one can challenge what God has ordained, what he's planned, what he's purposed. And what he's planned, what he's purposed in eternity, the Son's going to proclaim, the Son's going to carry out, perform in time, in history. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. Uh, he said to me, uh, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Now, the passage is not suggesting, as some faulty suggests, is not suggesting that the second person of the Trinity is a created being. Because who's Jesus Christ? Well, he's the eternal son. He's eternally the son of God from everlasting to everlasting. He was incarnately the Son of God when he came down to Bethlehem to be born in that stable, to be born as a baby among men. He was manifestly the Son of God uh, in his resurrection, right, when he rose from the dead. And he's going to be displayed gloriously as the Son of God throughout time and eternity as he is the chosen king and he will reign and rule. So all the atheists and all the cultists and all the errorists on biblical thinking, they're going to be confronted one day with their error. They're going to have to change their view. Because Jesus is the unique Son, the one and only Son. Acts chapter 13, verse 30, God raised him from the dead. For many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled the promise to our children that he's raised up Jesus as it is written in the second Psalm. Thou art my Son, today have begotten thee. And as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to decay, he's spoken this way, I will give you the holy, uh, I will give you the holy and the sure blessings of David. 
Right? God overturned wicked men, their hatred towards Christ. They murdered him. God raised him from the dead because he's the sovereign. And there's no question about his sovereignty. There's no question about him installing his son on the throne. There's no question about the majesty of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ. There's no question about the certainty of the outcome of the world. Because again, if death could not hold captive the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, no one else or nothing else certainly will. Again, the outcome's certain. The future's secure in Christ. We, again, we don't need to worry about anything. Verse 8, because of the submission of Christ, the Son of the Father, the fact that Christ left the courts of heaven, that he came to the earth, that he put on flesh, that he became a curse, or he humbled himself and became a curse, right? The sin bearer in order to rescue mankind. Uh, God's going to bestow upon Christ his Son the uh, vast riches of an inheritance that is now possessed by him but progressively being realized and will be fully here on the earth during the millennial kingdom then obviously into the eternal state verse 8 ask of me and i will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very the ends of the earth your possession so again the nations belong to christ the future therefore belongs to christ and again the earth is his possession Man's not going to destroy what belongs to Christ. Again, man's not going to uh, destroy the world by global warming. God will dispose of it when he's done. But by the decree of God, even in the face of past rebellion, even in the face of the anticipation of future rebellion, the Son is going to be victorious. It'll be a victorious conquest. Verse 9, Thou shalt break them, right? The nations that are in rebellion. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. The New English translation says you're going to smash them like a potter's jar. So Revelation 2 speaks of this. It confirms that God is sovereign and confirms the sovereign control of Christ. Applies this again to the future. The reign of Christ. Revelation 2 verse 25. Christ speaking to the churches says, Nevertheless, you have what you have hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes, he who keeps my deeds to the end. To him I will give the authority over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and the vessels of the potter are broken into pieces. I have also received authority from my Father. Right? The nations in the end of all the earth, they belong to Christ, given to him by the Father in eternity past. They will become his own possession. He will take the throne, just like God has promised his Father. He will reign supremely with supreme authority. He'll put down all rebellion over the nations. He'll rule the nations with a rod of iron and he'll break the people like pottery who stand in opposition. Revelation 12 and 5. She gave birth to a son, a male, who is the rule of the nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up to God in his throne. Revelation uh, uh, 1911. I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. Upon his head are many diadems. He has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. The armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean were following him on horses. Verse 15 of Revelation 19 has the echoes out of Psalm 2. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so with it he may smite the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Just like God the Father promised, the Son's going to rule. He's going to reign supremely over all of his enemies. He's going to execute final judgment. 
And then he's going to consign all of his enemies to relentless, eternal wrath in a place called hell. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the absolute sovereign over the nations. The Lord Jesus Christ is the absolute sovereign over the kingdoms of the earth because the Father has given that right to him to reign and to rule. Therefore, it is an act of utter foolishness and wicked rebellion for the nations now, for men now and in the future to try to cast off the authority of God and the authority of Christ. Because again, by God the Father's sovereign decree and his eternal power and purposes, men will never be able to thwart his plans. The Son's going to come, he's going to reign, and he's going to crush the rebellious. Because what belongs to Christ, he'll take. What has been given to him, what rightly belongs to him, he'll take both in time and eternity. And one day he will be recognized as before all men as the true and the sovereign over the earth. I say by all men because the promise of the scripture is that one day every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of the Father. The last stanza. Conspiracy of the nations, contempt of the Father, conquest of the Son, now the counsel of the Holy Spirit. So in light of all that truth, in light of all the facts of what is about to happen, the Holy Spirit himself steps up, as it were, and addresses the nations. And he calls them to repentance. He actually calls them to exercise wisdom. And he warns them, give up your rebellion. Humble yourself. Submit yourself to the Son. Embrace him before it's too late. Verse 10, Now therefore, O king, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth. Right? The ESV says, O kings, be wise, be warned. The Holy Spirit says, look, it's time for men to wise up. God takes no pleasure in judging men. He'd rather save men than judge them. He'd rather offer to men peace. He'd rather offer to men peace than war. He won't force his love and mercy upon those who are determined in the rebellion, but that rebellion will be put down. Time for the rebels to wake up. It's time for the rebels to show some discernment, some wisdom. They can't possibly win, so why continue? Why continue the battle? Now therefore, O king, show discernment, take warning, O judge of the earth. Verse 11, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Instead of resisting God, sinners must turn from that rebellion and worship the Lord. Worship the Lord with reverence, with fear. So again, the Holy Spirit is warning men in the rebellion to worship the sovereign, repent. And again, unless you repent, you're going to face most certainly the wrath of a holy God. So the Holy Spirit is begging men to abandon that rebellion because it's irrational to continue in that state. And the Holy Spirit is begging men to receive mercy. It's an invitation to mercy. It's an invitation to enjoy the the benefits of forgiveness of sin. Because after all of mankind's wickedness, God says, I'll still save you if you come to me. I'll still save you if you come to me. I'll receive you through the son of my love. Become 
conquered by love rather than be conquered by force. It's an invitation to come and not be crushed along with all the other rebels. Turn, find great pleasure in God, submit yourself to him with the deepest reverence. Therefore, O king, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence, rejoice with trembling, verse 12, do homage to the Son. I think all the modern translations in, uh, uh, in the uh, King James, New King James say, kiss the Son, kiss the Son. It's a sign of humble submission to the sovereign. The subject bows before, he lowers himself before the king, and he, he kisses him in devotion. Holy Spirit says, turn from your rebellion, give your full allegiance to Christ, kiss the Son, do homage to the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. He's saying, look, time's running out. Time's running out. Choice is clear. Either bend the knee or be broken. Either bend the knee or be shattered into pieces. Because again, while mercy is being extended, the choice is clear, bow before him in love before he makes you bow before him by force. So it's a warning, it's an invitation, it's a sincere offer to forgiveness from God the Father to the rebellious nations. He's again begging people to come to Christ. Come to Christ. While I withhold my judgment for a little bit longer so that you may come, that you might find true peace and happiness, kiss the Son. Show him honor. Show him the respect. Show him the allegiance that he deserves. Submit yourself to him. And then the Holy Spirit says this, How blessed are all who take refuge in him. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Again, the the choice is clear. Would you rather perish along the way or return to sanity and be blessed, enjoy happiness? For there is a day of vengeance that will be unleashed, a final day of judgment and wrath that will be poured out upon all the rebels of the universe. A day coming when men and women will want to fear from, want to uh, flee from the wrath of the Lamb, but they won't be able to escape him. So instead of wrath, mercy is offered one more time. Blessing. Come kiss the sun, says the Holy Spirit. Foolish rebels, come kiss the Son, and I'll still forgive you. In spite of your rebellion, come bow before him, honor him, worship him, adore him. Enjoy the peace that I offer you. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, what a tremendous portion of Scripture. The prophet Micah asked the question, Who is a God like you? There is no God like you in the entire universe. The God who pardons iniquity and passes over rebellious acts of sin. God who delights in forgiving men, but a God of justice who will punish the rebels. You freely offer forgiveness through your Son to those who acknowledge the fact that we were once a part of that rebellious race, but your word transformed and changed us, and you took our proud hearts and crushed them. You gave us grace, opened our blind eyes to the truth, and we have repented and come to you unconditionally surrendered in terms of your peace that by belief alone in your son the Lord Jesus Christ 
But for those who are not converted, those who have failed to repent, I pray that you might work in their hearts, that they might do so before it's too late. Again, the terms of surrender are the same, that men can only come by confession of sin and repentance and faith in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you freely offer to the world. May you work in the hearts of those who don't know Christ. And again, we who have tasted of your kindness, we bow before you and we just again tell you how much we love you, how much we're astonished that you are our Father in heaven, that you have loved us, and you've shown us great mercy and great grace. We adore you. We're thankful for Christ, thankful for your kindness. We gladly bow before you. We bow, we uh, gladly kiss your son and yield our life to you. Again, thank you for including us in your family. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.